Yep, yep. We love celebrating. Hey, by the way, if you have not been baptized, um, we've got one more week this semester because we will be here next week, short service. But I'll tell you what, if you want to get baptized next week, maybe you've never been baptized. Maybe you were baptized when you were really little. It wasn't really your decision. It was someone else's. Um, it might be time for you to make that decision to be baptized. And we would love to celebrate that with you. And so if you're interested in that, come find me. Come find a life group leader, somebody after service, and we will get it. We'll get you uh, fixed up, and we would love to celebrate baptism with you um, next week. So um, as we kick off tonight, um, I got to thinking about something earlier. Um, I was actually on uh, online, I was just checking some things out, and this, this list of like the best underdog movies came up on my, uh, on my feed. And so I was like, I need to check that out, right? Because who doesn't love an underdog movie, right? Everybody loves the comeback. Everybody loves whenever the dude who is beaten down begins to come back and just, you know, take over. Everybody loves that kind of stuff. You guys tell me, what are some of your favorite like underdog comeback movies? What? Rocky. It's why we have like 7,000 Rocky movies, right? Like everybody loves Rocky because he, he is the comeback kid. He is like for real. Yeah, I love it. What else? Avengers. Okay. Avengers. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> How about this one? Here's like my favorite underdog story. How about Rudy? Anybody ever seen Rudy? Yeah. I love Rudy. It's like legit. It's a classic. I know. Okay, uh, I think I was like too young to really appreciate it whenever it first came out. If you've never seen Rudy, you need to go watch Rudy. Or how about this, the, um, the knockoff version of Rudy the Adam Sandler Waterboy, right? It's, it's like knockoff Rudy. That's really what it is. How about this one, um, Karate Kid, right? Now, 80s version or 2010 version, I don't know, Little Will Smith, you know, whatever. It, both of them are pretty cool, you know. Yeah, they're great. Every Hunger Games movie, every Hunger Games movie is, is, is like a, an underdog movie. Yeah. You know, so I actually, when I was reading that list, they made this point. Why has Marvel done so much better in the theaters than DC? We got any comic book nerds in the house? Anybody who can appreciate this? A few of Okay. So um, why has Marvel done, I'm making like half of you guys mad right now because you're DC fans, but why has Marvel done better than DC? And, and they, they made this point because Marvel takes common everyday people, right? Like everyday flawed people that we can relate to and then they give them like superhuman powers, right? And now I'm not going to give any like in-game spoilers, okay? You can pull your fingers out of your ears. It's okay. I haven't seen it yet. I have two little kids under five. Uh, the movie theater is not a happy place for my family right now, so we don't go. Um, but Marvel is all about the stories of flawed people that have to like overcome some aspect of themselves when they're handed these superhuman, superhuman powers, right? Like you've got a Tony Stark who becomes, you know, he's a brilliant jerk, becomes Iron Man, right? It, you've, got, you've got Bruce Banner who's the soft-spoken, weak scientist who becomes like powerful, enraged Hulk. Right? You've got Thor who's been banished to earth because, well, he needs a lesson in humanity, right? And, and, you know, they're all awesome, right? But they're all a little bit flawed, aren't they? And we can kind of relate. And, and because we can re- relate, we love it when they win, don't we? Like, think about it. Just about every fight scene, every movie is going to have this point where it seems like it's, it's, dude, they are getting taken out. Like, it is the end. It is fourth quarter, and they are down for the count. And then all of a sudden, the good guys rally, and they come back, and we love it, don't we? 
We absolutely love it. But you know, there's one thing that there's no comeback for. There's one instance in life where there is no comeback. That's death. There is no comeback for death. Death is the final thing. It is when you take your final breath, when you've said your last word, did your last deed. It's when your life is finished, done, completed, extinguished, finito. Death is the final end unless you're a believer. Unless you're a believer. You see, what we learn biblically is that Jesus defeated death. It was the ultimate comeback when Jesus died for our sins on a cross, was buried in a grave, and then three days later, literally, in bodily form, raised from the dead. No one else in history can ever claim that. No one else in history will ever be able to truthfully claim that. Yet Jesus accomplished that task. It's why we celebrate Easter with the resurrection of Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus, the truth is the resurrection of Jesus holds some promises for you that that no one else gets to claim. And one of those promises is this, that death, death will not be the end for you. But followers of Jesus will be brought back to life and we will spend eternity in heaven. John 3.16 puts it this way, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son and whoever believes in him inherits eternal life. They get eternal life. So when some people read that verse and they see eternal life, they believe that eternal life begins after we die. And and I suppose that you can wait for death to start living like you have life in Christ, or you could claim the life that Jesus has purchased for you and start living that life now. Eternal life And the life that Jesus offers is not just an afterlife thought. And here's the truth. It's only when we accept the life that Christ has for us now that we bring honor and glory to the one that gave us that life. Let me explain it like this. If I take 20 bucks and you and I, we go down to the gas station down the road here and I walk in and I hand the cashier $20 and I pay for $20 worth of gas and you turn to me and and I'm like, hey, I want to give you $20 worth of gas and you turn to me and you say thank you and then you drive off. Does that $20 worth of gas do anything for you? No, because you forgot to put it in your tank, right? Like, ooh, duh, you know? Like, so... Much like that $20 worth of gas will do nothing to help your car run, the life that has been bought and paid for by Jesus will do nothing to help you live if you don't accept it and begin to live that life right now. It will do nothing for you. But, but listen to this, Romans eight eleven: The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God. God's spirit, God's power The very thing that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. And he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. You see that word mortal? That literally means earthly bodies. He will give life to you now. See, when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit makes his home inside of you. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. So the next time, think about this. The next time that you feel overwhelmed by anxiety, when the struggles of life hit, sickness, discouragement, I want you to remember that as a believer in Jesus, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And that, that spirit 
is, it, is what is at work within us. That, that, that's the spirit that's going to carry us through. So instead of being an anxious believer, you can be a believer filled with peace, the peace of God that comes from his presence, that comes from the spirit that lives inside of you. And instead of being defeated in life, you can make better decisions daily with the help of God's spirit. Instead of being discouraged, you can remember the promises of God because the Holy Spirit that's living inside of you will lead you to truth and to righteousness. He will remind you of the things that Jesus said. You can remember the promises of God. And when we placed our faith in him, you know that our God is a God of love, mercy, grace, and that his plans for you are for a hope and a future. Here's what this isn't. This isn't working really hard on yourself to make sure that your life is better next year than it is this year. It's not working really hard to be better, to do better. It's much more placing your faith in the God that has taken up residence in your heart. Relying on him day in and day out and trusting that the same God that raised Christ from the dead is at work within you. And because of that, we expect to change for the better because of God's spirit within us. Christ offers us new life. For many of us, we know that we get that. Here's the problem that I see. We begin to confuse resurrection with resuscitation. Resurrection life is what Jesus offers us, but we begin to confuse resurrection with resuscitation. I'll put it this way. God will do both. He loves us. He cares for us. When we're down, he cares. When we're hurting, he's hurting. So what happens is that people get into a down state where they're more inclined to cry out for God, and God hears their cry, and God responds. And so they're in a down state. They're in a bad place, and God, oftentimes, he'll, he'll use one of you guys. He'll use a believer to step in and, and serve that individual. They'll, they'll provide exactly what that individual needs for that time, and, and, and so God and his power begins to lift that individual from their down state, from their dark place, whatever it looks like. He gives them what they need. He, he, he'll, for, he'll offer them forgiveness and love. He cares for them. But when they leave that encounter with God, they're still the same person they were before. They took the help that God offered, but they didn't take the new life that God offered. Do you see the difference? A lot of people want to cry out for God for help. Especially in a dark time. We see, this, we see this often, right? When things get tough, national emergencies, man, people will begin to cry out for God. And because God is loving, because God is caring, he's going to respond as the loving and caring God that he is. My wife um, is an ICU nurse here in town. And man, she comes home telling me like some crazy stories. Like, y'all, one time she told me that she had to do CPR on this big old dude in his bed. And my wife is like, yay tall. She's like, you know, I don't know, buck ten, sopping wet. You know what I'm saying? Like, she's, she's pretty petite, right? This dude's like 300 pounds, okay? And she's having to do CPR on this guy. She has to jump up on the table and like start CPR on this dude to begin to reset. Like somebody, you guys, have you guys ever seen somebody do CPR? It is like wicked crazy. They like hurt them in doing this, right? Like people break ribs and stuff to do CPR properly. It's nuts. So if you can imagine my wife doing this like on some big old dude, right? And she brings him back to life. She resuscitates that dude back to life. And somebody with the right skills, 
right? Somebody with the right knowledge, they can resuscitate someone. They can bring that individual back to life. Now, if that person is resuscitated and brought back to life, here's the thing. They come back to life with the same problems they had before they died. There's a difference in resurrection and resuscitation. If they had a bad back before, they'll have a bad back again. If they had an addiction before, they'll have an addiction again. If they told bad jokes before, they're going to tell bad jokes again, right? Like, what you died with when you're resuscitated, you come back with, right? But that's not what Christ promised when he declared that we would have new life. What Christ promised, what Christ promised was resurrection life, not resuscitated life. So resurrection is new life. It's not a recycled, refurbished, resuscitated old life. Resurrection life is new life. What, what I see all the time is that we get these two confused and then, and then living for Jesus gets terribly hard because the same power that raised Christ from the dead that, that is supposed to live in us, he was never in the resurre- resuscitation business. He's in the resurrection business. And so the, the same power, when we accept Jesus and he comes and he takes up residence in our heart and then we think that we're supposed to do the things we did before but we have no power to do those things. In fact, now we're just conflicted and we just feel bad for not being a new creation and, having, and living according to new life. The spirit, that, the, the spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in the resurrection business, not the resuscitation business. When you get saved by Jesus, new life is meant to be yours. But here's the thing. Here's the hard part. Resurrection requires death. Resurrection requires death. It requires the death of the old things, the old man, the old habits, the old friendships, the old attitudes, the old thoughts, the old ways of partying, the old ways of dating. Listen, especially for you guys in today's society, pay attention to this, okay? You've got to recognize that who you date and how you date matters, Because who you date is who you're going to end up marrying. And who you marry will be the second most important decision you'll ever make in your life. Second only to choosing Jesus as as your Lord and Savior. Who you marry will matter and influence your life more than anything else. I heard a man one time tell me that he can determine where someone's going to be in five years by three things. The books they read, the friends they have, and who they marry. Now, just to be honest, he was talking about people in ministry. But I think it carries all the way through. So I can show you who you're going to be in five years. By the books you read, the Bible ought to be one of those, by the way. The friends you hang around with and who you marry. At this point, who you date. So we put to death the sinful man and his ways. And we accept and live according to the new life in Jesus, the resurrection life in Jesus. And this is where new life starts. But let me say this, it's not meant to end there. Your new life, this new life that we find in Jesus will only be sustained by a new love for Jesus. New life in Jesus is only sustained by a new love for Jesus. The faster you grow to love Christ, the sooner your new life becomes mature life in the faith. Now, I'm just willing to bet that for the majority of you in here, I get it, some of you guys is your first time with us, some of you guys are not even believers, I understand that, but for the majority of you in here, you would say, I want a mature faith, I want to be a mature believer in Jesus, and I'm telling you right now, that the sooner that that you fall in love with Christ, that's when new life becomes mature life in Christ. 
We all want to do big things for Jesus. But few will do the hard work of learning about Jesus so as to, to know him more, to spend time with him. And, and you guys have heard me talk about this. If you were here for our relationship series, we say this, um, <clears throat> intimate knowledge breeds intimacy. And so it, it works like this. Whenever you, you, know, you walk into Chi Alpha and you know, some hottie walks in the door and everything freezes, right? Like you're just zoned in. You're drooling a little bit. You know, you got to wipe off the drool. And then you finally build up the courage to go and talk to that individual. You get their number. You begin to text. You begin to, you know, you just, you start talking to them. And all of a sudden, you're thinking crazy thoughts like, I would spend money on a nice dinner just to hang out with them. We call it a date, you know, okay? You dudes are thinking things like, I will go to a chick flick just because she's going to be there. And, and you begin communicating and spending time with each other and you're talking with each other. And, and man, you, you, you start sharing those secrets and then all of a sudden, before you know it, love is in the air. You got all the fuzzies in your belly. When they walk in the room, you just melt. All those things. Why? Because intimate knowledge breeds Intimacy. You get closer and closer and closer with that individual until love just begins to stir up inside of you. Let me tell you something. It works the same way with Jesus. Intimate knowledge with Jesus, spending that time with him, making sacrifices to spend time with him. The more you learn about him, the more you fall in love with him. And this new life in Jesus is only sustained by a new love for Jesus. Before long, what happens is you end up becoming that new creation. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Now think about this. When we, when we think about anything new, there's an excitement, isn't there? Like, if, if your parents call you later tonight and they're like, hey, we're going to go get you a new car. If you're like my parents, it's like a new used car, right? It's new to you, right? But it's still exciting, isn't it, right? I mean, think about it. Even this verse, right? The new is here, exclamation point, right? Like there's something great about the new that's coming. We, we get excited about this stuff. And many of you guys, you've experienced this. You've literally become a new creation, and your new life is so much better than your old life. It's filled with things like peace and hope and joy, and, and you don't even really know how to explain it, but the new just seems to be better. David Wilkerson, in a book called The Cross and the Switchblade, he says this, He's talking about evangelizing, but I want to flip this for just a minute as we read this, okay? You win people over just like you win over a dog. You see a dog passing down the street with an old bone in his mouth. You don't grab the bone from him and tell him it's not good for him. He'll growl at you. It's the only thing he has. But you throw a big fat lamb chop in front of him, and he's going to drop that bone and pick up the lamb chop, his tail wagging to the beat of the band. And you've got a friend. Instead of going around grabbing bones from people... I'm going to throw them some lamb chops, something with real meat and life in it. I'm going to tell them about new beginnings. Where do you think David Wilkerson got this idea? Was it not from Jesus? Was it not from, like, we're not going to take the old from people. We're going to offer them something better. 
We're going to make them a better offer. Jesus is the one who invites us to leave behind the old bones of our old life. And he offers us this big fat lamb chop of life and it's been set before us. And he says, okay, choose. I don't understand why people don't choose. It's, it seems crazy to me. New life is set before you. I think it's interesting to talk to a lot of people when they recognize they, 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 they kind of pick and choose from the word of God. And you've probably heard this before. You know, the God of the Old Testament, he's just wrath and he's just angry and you know, all this kind of stuff. Listen, God's appeal for mankind has never been based on the threat of punishment. God's appeal for mankind has never been based on the threat of punishment. God's appeal for humanity has always, has always been carried out through a deep, unending love rather than harsh discipline. Now, discipline is included in love. Don't get me wrong. If I let my kids run amok, you, you would say that they're spoiled and you would say that I didn't love them. But God's appeal has never been through harsh punishment or discipline. It's always been through an unending, deep love. So I, I see this all the time with, with my baby girls. My wife and I, we discipline, we spank, we do time out. I know I'm like your enemy right now because we spank, you know, I don't, I don't whatever. Um, hashtag, I'll raise my kids, you raise yours. Um, <laughs> here's the truth. I, I've never felt like it was the discipline that actually causes my kids to grow out of an old way and into the new way. It's when I sit my daughter down and I explain why she's in trouble. And I lovingly remind her that I value her. And that no matter what, I'm always going to love her. And I show her the end results of doing something right instead of doing something wrong. That's when I see life change in my daughters. This is how God operates. This is how God operates. He doesn't threaten punishment. He offers new life. And God has continually set a greater option before us. And his hope is that you'll choose the greater, better option of life, not death. And what we know is that the first step in choosing new life is always twofold. It's always twofold. It always involves joy for the greater thing, the greater option. We are excited about the new opportunity, the new thing that's been set before us. But at the same time, there's a sorrowful repentance that we broke God's heart with the old thing. It's not just being sad because you realize you're wrong. It's also the joy of, of new life. It's not being grateful. It's not just being grateful for forgiveness. It's also recognizing what it cost our Lord to purchase that forgiveness. I've heard this dichotomy of emotions explained as a, a union of tenderness and severity all at once. Where Jesus throughout the New Testament so masterfully mixes terror and comfort. Because Jesus was the embodiment of both truth and love all at the same time. And it's how he approaches every single one of us. It's both the death of Jesus and his resurrection that we remember. There's something greater, but that greater thing cost our Lord his life. It's, it's the life that he willingly gave on earth so, so that we could be with him in heaven. This is resurrection life, not resuscitated life. And we recognize that eternal life with Jesus begins right now through the Spirit of God working in us. It's real life. Eternal life, the resurrection life Jesus offers, is intended to begin now. But we remember that this is indeed just the beginning. Colossians 3 says this. 
Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So, when you read this verse, you might just be tempted to think immediately of like the kingdom of heaven, like like spiritual things. Set your mind on spiritual things. But I want you to notice something. He specifically says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on a, a place that is above where Christ is seated. That is the throne room of God. That is heaven. That is not just the spiritual. Set your mind on heaven, not on earthly things. I'm reading this book uh, right now by Randy Alcorn. It's called Heaven. It's blowing me away. It's such a refreshing reminder of like what's to come. In fact, if you've never read much on heaven, um, I, would, I would encourage you to pick up this book. It's Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's an easy read. It's a big book, but I promise you it will be worth it. Um, so refreshing. If you're, if you're like me, when you first learned about heaven, you kind of imagined an eternity of like floating around on clouds and playing harps, right? Because there's no drums or electric, electric guitars in heaven. You know, at least not in any of the movies that I'd ever seen, right? Like, they were all harps, and that just seems boring, right? Um, <laughs> but as I've matured, it excites me more and more to recognize how awesome heaven is actually going to be. Um, this book has helped me actually recognize some of this. See, I, I know some people that fear death because they feel like it's the end of something for them. They feel like it's, it's the end of life. And for some, if you're not a believer in Jesus, death is the end of life for you. But then, I know other people who, who fear death because um, they kind of fear the afterlife or the boredom of the afterlife because they've never really had someone properly describe heaven to them. And, and let's face it, like, if you, if you don't imagine heaven as exciting or, or a cool place, right, like, who really wants to go there? And, and, and you've got all these little spiritual sayings about heaven that, that seem really good, but if you can't picture it, right, then that's really difficult to talk about. Um, George MacDonald, he's actually an author that C.S. Lewis called his master and teacher. If you know me, C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. This is the guy who influenced C.S. Lewis. He said this, how strange this fear of death is. We, never, we are never frightened at a sunset. Think about that for a minute. How strange this fear of death is. For we are, never, we are never frightened by a sunset. Why? We expect for there to be a new day. Listen, if you're a believer in here, dear, death is nothing to be afraid of. For there will be new life and a new day. In an eternity in heaven. We would say this. Death is actually the beginning of living life in a way that God always intended. And what this book, Heaven, has helped me recognize it is that all the things we desire here on earth will actually be completely satisfied in heaven in a way that will always be lacking here on earth. How many of you guys have, have um, maybe you remember when you were younger and you received that Christmas present and it was like the only thing that you ever wanted, right? Like I got the PS4 and it was so cool for about three weeks, right? <laughs> didn't satisfy, right? You know, you, you, you end up, some of you guys, you, you know, you, you got all A's last semester and, and that's awesome and it's great, but at this point in the semester, you're thinking, a B looks pretty good. I'm all right with a B, you know? 
I want to I give you just a couple of quotes. This is kind of a mashup from this book, Heaven, that Randy Alcorn wrote. We've got this on the screen up there for you. For the Christian, death is not the end of adventure, but a doorway from a world where dreams and adventures shrink to a world where dreams and adventures forever expand. Heaven is an exciting physical place on a redeemed world with redeemed people in redeemed relationships without sin and death where there is music, art, science, sports, literature, and culture. The new earth is where there'll be no more pain and sorrow and God will wipe away the tears from every eye. They all lived happily ever after is not, a mere, is not merely a fairy tale. It's the blood-bought promise of God for all who trust in the gospel. Think about that for a minute. Every kid's fantasy fairy tale that says they lived happily ever after, doesn't that sound phenomenal? But we know that will never be the case here on earth. But it is the blood-bought promise for those who believe in Christ. There will be a day when they live happily ever after, when we live happily ever after. We call that place heaven. This is just a glimpse into what we're told to keep our eyes on by the writer of Colossians. We're told to continually look forward to what's to come in heaven. Now, there's some things about heaven that people kind of freak out about, this eternal life thing, because people hear things like, we won't be married in heaven. And here's the thing. I will not be married to my wife, Ashley, in heaven. We will be, but we will be a part of the same marriage to Jesus. Yet I'll say this. I will be closer to my wife than ever before. It won't be the end of our relationship, but the beginning of a new, better relationship, uninhibited by sin and selfishness, which is the destroyer of relationships here on the earth. I want you to stop and consider for a moment how your relationships would change if there were no sin to hurt them. And there will be no sin in heaven. How awesome can relationships be if there were no selfishness. One day in heaven, I'll be closer to my wife, my kids, and my friends than ever before. It's not that relationships disappear. They actually get way better. And if you're in here tonight, you've dealt with any sort of pain or disability. If there's emotional pain or suffering, all of this is going to be done away with. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And when we finally enter into eternity, into our our heavenly home, we're going to recognize that all of our desires that we had here on earth, they weren't wishful thinking, but they were pointing us towards a very real heaven that was a part of God's plan the whole time. Think about it. Anything and everything that you've ever desired that nothing on this earth can fulfill will be satisfied in heaven. The desires in your heart are not pointing you towards anything but what you were originally created for. An eternity with him in a perfect place, in a perfect heaven. It's not just that we want something, it's that we were created for something. And when you finally get that image in your mind, when you finally see the greater option that God has set before you, it changes everything. So here's the deal. Tonight is my last opportunity to lead this wonderful movement of Jesus-loving men and women from this pulpit. This is my last real sermon as Kyle for director here at Angelo State. 
want to leave you with this. What Jesus purchased for you is a very real eternal life. But it's not just for the afterlife. It's for today as well. It starts with accepting forgiveness for your sin. It grants you a right relationship with your heavenly father. And this is the new life that can begin today. It is the greater option that God has set before you to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if there were one thing that I could encourage you for, is that there is nothing greater in life that we're called to pursue than to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is a greater option that has been set before.